We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, the topic is the value of a good, healthy, robust debate. Conservatives of all people should welcome this. We should not shy away from it. Bring it on. Let's have a good discussion. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Today's topic is the value of a good disagreement, the importance of debate, iron sharpening iron, coming together as conservatives, recognizing that your opinion really doesn't matter, nor does mine. Feelings shouldn't trump facts. It should be the other way around. And if we shy away from those good, robust disagreements, then We're the losers for it because you don't come to truth by fixating on feelings. You just don't. So conservatives should recognize the value of having a conversation. Conservatives should recognize the value, the importance of truth judging our debates, our discussions, our disagreements. We should not shy away from these things. We should welcome them. That's today's show. I've talked about it a thousand times over before, but it's so important in our current political and theological and moral environment right now. If we shut down because we've been intimidated into silence, our culture is going to lose for it, and so will our kids. It's our responsibility to walk into the market square of ideas, bold and courageous as Joshua of old, or As St. Paul said, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. These are passages out of Scripture that tell us to run toward the battle, not away from it. And that's the nature of today's show. So let's take an early break, and when I get back, I'm going to share with you this example of an exchange I've had with a friend, a guy that generally agrees with me, but we disagree on a certain thing, and that's okay. We can have that disagreement. We can do it in a healthy fashion. We can still shake hands after we're done, and hopefully we're both better off for it. That's what conservatives do, because we trust the truth. We conserve it. We don't dodge it. We don't allow the facts to be hidden by emotional temper tantrums, trigger warnings, microaggressions, cancel culture. That's the opposite of what classical conservatism is. So, again, let's take an early break, and when I get back, we'll talk about the value of a good disagreement and a good debate. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. 
In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance, and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, so welcome back to the Rebellion. The generic topic for the day, again, is the value of a good debate. And why I don't believe conservatives, of whatever stripe you are, whether you be a political conservative, a theological conservative, a moral conservative, if you're a person that believes in conservation, if you're a conservationist, if you believe in preserving, conserving those things that matter, then you can't shy away from the debate because there are always people that are out there trying to metaphorically cut down your trees, dam up your rivers, kill the spotted owl, etc. So you see the analogy I'm making here. Conservationists are willing to step into the battle because they believe that forests should be preserved and that air should be clean, likewise water. They believe that our environment is something that we should conserve. We shouldn't uh, degrade it. And I agree with that. Uh, I do believe that we're giving, we're, we are given a mandate by God in Scripture to uh, be good stewards of the earth. I don't think it should control us. I think we should control it. But as we are stewarding the earth, our resources, creation, we should do a good job. We shouldn't uh, destroy it. Uh, I've got a small little farm ranch up here in northeast Oklahoma, and one of the things I need to make sure that I do is conserve the grass. Well, how do you do that? You make sure that you fertilize it on a routine basis, otherwise you degrade it. If you keep taking hay off of it year after year after year, you're taking the nutrients out of that particular particular piece of property, and it's going to degrade it to the point where it can't produce any longer. Uh, thus, you had the Dust Bowl back in the good old days, Right. So there's value in conservationism, right? Otherwise, you end up destroying the very things that help you um, survive, the, the things that provide for you and your family. And that's true morally and politically and theologically, too. If you just keep degrading the property, the moral property, the theological property, the political property, if you just keep taking from the land rather than replacing the nutrients, then you're going to destroy it. And over time, it's going to be worthless to you. Uh, again, that's why we had the Dust Bowl. 
We took, we took, we took, and we didn't defend the property, the land. Well, when we keep taking and taking and taking from our moral culture, a culture that's been healthy, that bore good produce and good fruit for us over the decades, over the centuries, if we keep taking back, taking from it and not giving back to it through good, healthy, robust debate and conversation and the defense of truth, then sooner or later you've, you've cultivated the field. Uh, you've, you've, you've taken the crap off of the field. You've taken all the freedoms. You've taken all the liberties. You've enjoyed them all. You've consumed them all. You ate all of the good food that the country provided to you. And there's nothing left. There's nothing left. So the nature of a debate is to replenish the culture, replenish our society with truth. It's kind of a fertilizer, if you will, of the land in which we live. So we shouldn't shy away from the debate. You know, I've used the examples of the midterm elections, various different midterm elections, whether it be here in Oklahoma, Governor Stitt's race, Ryan Walter's race, or the race in, um, in Florida, Ron DeSantis's victory there, and well, as well as the national races. You know, why wasn't there a red wave, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about all that stuff endlessly. And that's really not the point of today's show, but the point is to use some of these political discussions as a, a little laboratory, a lens through which we can look to assess what our role is in a free society. So over the last couple of weeks, you know that I, I've commented on the midterm elections. Um, several conservative writers have done so. It's it was really kind of surprising to me to see, to see the number of conservatives that came out and actually criticized Donald Trump after the midterms. I didn't think that many people would. And you know why? Because it's such a flashpoint in our culture right now. You can't win either way. You have TDS on both sides of the fence, in my view. Extreme never-Trumpers can't give the guy credit for anything right that he did. The religious freedoms that we enjoyed the strong economy, the fact that we didn't have any wars, et cetera, et cetera, a sane policy with regard to national borders. I could go on and on with regard to the good things that came out of the Trump administration, but at the same time, I'm going to criticize him if I think he's wrong, and that's where the Trumpers lose their mind, in my view, because, oh, my land, you criticize Donald Trump, you've got to be a very, very, very bad person. Well, no, that doesn't make me a bad person. It makes me a thoughtful human being. No individual, I don't care who it is, whether it's Mike Pompeo, whether it's Ron DeSantis, whether it's Kevin Stitt, whether it's Donald Trump, no individual is going to be above reproach. We should criticize those leaders among us when they're wrong. And if we agree with them, then say thank you. But if we disagree with them and they think they've compromised a moral principle or a political principle or an ontological principle, a logical principle. We should be willing to say so. Now you got that one wrong. Well, I did that in my commentary after the midterms. I've been among those writers who have been willing to say that I think Donald Trump's time has come and gone. I think we should move on to younger leaders. We shouldn't try to keep looking backward. We shouldn't keep talking about 2020. We're going to lose if we do, because we're looking back. We're not looking forward. And the, 
the good news is we've got a very strong bench. We've got very good leaders on the Republican bench, the conservative bench, that we can turn to for our future rather than keep rehashing the past. So I think Donald Trump was good for his day, but his day is past. It's gone. And if you're tempted to turn me off right now, that's the point of today's show. You shouldn't do that. We should be able to have a relatively unemotional discussion on this issue without calling each other names and accusing each other of being traitors. And I've been praised for saying what I've said about Donald Trump, and I've been vilified. I've been called a traitor and a uniparty moron. I've had other people use expletives that I can't and shouldn't repeat on this show. And I've had some people reach out to me, a lot of people reach out to me and cautiously say, thank you, it needed to be said. And when they're cautious, I understand why. It's like they want to keep their head down. They don't want to get shot in the back of the head by friends. I mean, the, the culture wars are <laughs> exhausting enough when we're fighting against those people that will never agree with us, let alone how exhausting is it when you have people that you consider allies all of a sudden get so angry with you that they shut you down and call you names. So in the flurry of all this positive and negative stuff that I've um, brought upon myself by speaking openly about the midterms and Donald Trump, there was one exchange that I had on Facebook, and I've talked to you about it on an earlier show. It was an exchange with somebody who basically shares my worldview. I'm just going to call him Mike for the sake of, for the sake of anonymity here. Mike agreed with me concerning former President Trump's political liabilities. He's not a Trumper. Um, is he a never-Trumper? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know if he... And it's none of my business, quite frankly. I, I don't know if he voted for Donald Trump once, twice, or zero. I don't know. Um, but I do know he's a, a conservative. He's a conservative Christian. So he agrees with my worldview, substantially so, anyway. And... Mike concurred that it is time for Republicans to choose a different standard bearer. So he agreed with my point that I was making on previous shows as well as some writing for the Washington Times. Mike understands that our failure to do so will likely result in failure uh, at the polls in subsequent elections, 2024 and whatnot. Okay, that's one of the points that I've tried to defend. I think we're going to lose if we keep looking backward and choosing old leadership and rehashing old ideas, old failures, old frustrations. I think we need to look forward, recognizing that's the way you win. And if you're always looking back, you're going to lose. My friend Mike agrees with all that. But that's not why Mike reached out to me you know, on a Facebook exchange. The reason that he reached out, his primary message to me was not to say good for you, but rather to say shame on you. Mike wasn't writing to dish out praise. He wasn't reaching out to me in social media, Facebook, Twitter, and whatnot to praise me and thank me. He wanted to challenge me. He wanted me to admit that I should have never, quote, in his words, bowed to the devil in the first place. Okay? So... These are fighting words in our culture today. You're saying that you bowed to the devil. That's his language. That's what he's accusing me of doing by virtue of saying anything positive about Donald Trump over the last several years. So apparently Mike has been more frustrated with me than I understood. He, he thought I had sold out, sold my soul to Donald Trump, Republican Party, um, that I had bowed to the devil. And I should have known better, he says. 
In fact, I'm going to read to you exactly what he said to me. And then I'm going to read to you my response to him. This is a little bit of a rehash in an earlier show, but I think this is very important. I want to make sure I'm making my point very clear right now. So Mike reaches out to me and he says, Dear Dr. Piper, I see your comments concerning Donald Trump. Good. However, how did you miss the message when you read your Bible and the story of Satan taking Jesus on the mountain and promising him power over nations if he would only bow down? You, the church, and other Christian conservatives did the exact same thing with Trump. You bowed down and kissed the ring. You were warned. Jesus himself warned you. It's time to find someone else. You know it. Now what is more important, to have power over a nation or to serve God? Choose, like Jesus did. Close quote. This is for my friend Mike. I'm going to read that again. I want you to hear what he's saying. And I want you to hear my response. Now, you know, he's being pretty aggressive. I could be offended by that. In fact, my first reaction is, seriously, you're saying that I sold my soul? Um, but here's my point. A good debate, you don't, don't allow your emotions to trump the facts. Stay focused on, on the issues at hand. Don't go down rabbit trails. Don't start calling people names. Don't shoot the messenger. Attend to the message. So what's Mike's basic message? He's saying that Christians, if we read our Bible, should have recognized the story of Satan taking Jesus up on the mountain and promising Jesus power over the entire world, over all nations, if he would only bow down to Satan and worship him. Mike's saying that clearly you've heard that story, you've read that story, you've probably spoken and written and preached on that story, Piper. How'd you miss this? You, this is Mike's language, the church and other Christian conservatives did the exact same thing with Donald Trump. You bowed down. You kissed the ring. You were warned by Jesus himself. He warned you. Yeah, we agree. I agree, says Mike. We need to find somebody else. You know it now. And what's more important, to have power over a nation or to serve God? Choose like Jesus did. He's really scolding me, isn't he? Well, how do you respond? How do I respond? Well, if I agree... I say, Mike, good for you. You're right, I confess, I repent, I was wrong. Or if I disagree, I say so and I tell him why, without getting angry or emotional about it. So here's my response. Dear Mike, I disagree. Your analogy is simply wrong. No one in my camp, now when I say no one in my camp, I know there are other people who may have done what Mike is accusing me of doing. But in my camp, the people that agree with me, the people that align with me, my camp, no one in my camp bowed to anyone but Christ. No one kissed any ring. No one celebrated any king. I never hesitated to criticize President Trump when he was wrong or to thank him when he was right. I have said over and over again that conservatives are people of principles, not personalities. I've repeatedly said Americans should vote for a constitution, not a king. I've instructed a dozen times over that Republicans are covenantal and not hierarchical, whereas Democrats, by definition, are the opposite. And then I went on and I said this to my friend Mike. Voting for Donald Trump because he was far less evil than the alternative was not emperor worship in the least. 
In fact, many of us that you now criticize have repeatedly said that while we were grateful for Mr. Trump's policies, that this emperor, Donald Trump, was coming dangerously close, at least at times, to having very few clothes. Hardly the stuff of worshiping Caesar, in my view. No, sir, this tiger has not changed his stripes. My argument is as it has always been. Biblical Christians must vote for the greatest measure of human freedom that we can get in any election. Or as my friend Tom Askell down at Founders Ministries in Florida recently wrote in what he titled his Requiem for My Nation. This is Askell's quote. The longer I have lived as a Christian, the more clearly I have come to see that the second great commandment requires at least a modicum of patriotism. How can I love my neighbor as myself if I do not want my neighbor to enjoy the blessings and freedoms that I desire? And if I see those blessings and freedoms being destroyed by frontal assaults as well as by espionage and betrayal, is it loving my neighbor to do nothing and stay silent? Close quote. So that was my response to Mike. Now, you notice I didn't call Mike names. I didn't say, you're stupid, you're an idiot, you're a traitor, you're a uniparty moron, and, you know, things that I've been called. I didn't resort to expletives because of a lack of vocabulary or any depth of thought. I hope I didn't offend him. Now, I've been strong. I've been firm. I've said, Mike, I disagree. I think you're simply wrong. I think you're misapplication of the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan is um, you're throwing it at the wrong person, I, I think. Now, Mike didn't push back. Either he agrees with me or he thought, okay, we've pushed it far enough. But I welcome the pushback if he thinks I'm missing the message of Scripture. And I welcome it from you too. And you should welcome it. Don't yell. Don't get any more defensive than you have to be. You can defend yourself, get defend your views, defend your ideas, but try not to be personally offended and resort to uh, animosity, animus. So here's my point. I'm not offended by Mike's comments per se. Uh, he pushed he pushed the edges a bit. He, I mean, he said I bowed down, essentially, to Satan. Um, no, I didn't, in my view. It, I, I don't know what else I could have done. Oh, I could have voted for a third party. I could have claimed I was taking the moral high ground by, by doing that. But I concluded logically, pragmatically, that that was essentially throwing away my vote, that I, I had to vote for one person or the other, and I had to vote for the person that would give me more freedom and give you more freedom rather than less. Now, there could be a time in the future where I would agree with those of you out there listening right now that say, no, you don't have to vote for one of those two parties. We need to start voting for a third party, even if we lose a couple elections. I understand that. I understand the principle and the ideals of that. Pragmatically, it's just not working right now. I suppose if you live in a state where you know that one of the two candidates is going to win anyway, then you can be principled. You can say, well, I'm going to vote for the Constitutionalist Party. I'm going to vote for fill-in-the-blank. Because you know that 
your vote probably didn't sway the election. But if you live in Florida, or even if you lived in Oklahoma during this last election, the, the, the vote for between Stitt and Hoffmeister was, sh- was shockingly close, stunningly close. So to vote for a third party in that situation, I think, would have been wrong because we could have ended up with Joy Hoffmeister as our governor, and that would have been a complete, unmitigated disaster, a disaster for your freedom and mine and your children's. So I'm not offended by Mike's comments, and I hope he isn't offended by my response. This kind of give and take, and that's the point of today's show, this kind of give and take is something conservatives should welcome. This should be part of the part of the joy of being a conservative, the fun of recognizing that there's something bigger and better than your offense or my offense, your opinion or my opinion, your feelings or my feelings. In, in, in a real sense, none of those should matter much at all because conservatives discuss. We don't demean. Canceling and shunning those with whom we disagree is not what we should do. The tension, it's called dissonance, the tension that comes from the push and shove, the give and take of a good debate, is how people learn, and conservatives should be championing that as one of our first things, our top priorities. This iron sharpening iron, again, going back to the Old Testament proverb, is how we make corrections. This is how human beings grow. This is how we become adults. We move from adolescence to adulthood by challenging and sharpening each other. Being on a team, you know that you produce when you listen, when you attend to the coach, you're more productive on the court. If you refuse to acknowledge that you need to be coached, you need to be corrected, you need to change your game. If you refuse to do those things, then ultimately you're probably a ball hog and you're probably going to lose. So we make corrections. We grow. This is how we decide how to vote and how to live. So when the dinner conversation, whether it be this past Thanksgiving or in future days, it's the holiday season, so you'll probably be getting together with friends and family Again, more than once over the course of the next several weeks. If conversation in these venues turns to politics, well, I would say don't. <laughs> don't despair. Don't, oh my land, life is terrible. All we do is argue. Don't, don't despair. It's okay. Bring on the disagreement. Again, it was King Solomon who once said, as iron sharpens iron, let one man sharpen another. And if my argument is weak, I want it to be strengthened. I want you to challenge me. I want you to say, I don't understand. I think you're missing something there. One of the things I enjoy about um, visiting my son, Kobe, up in Indianapolis area, is that he loves a good discussion. Sometimes it's a a debate. Sometimes it's a disagreement, a robust one. He has a lot of his dad's genes in him, so sometimes the sparks can fly. But we're both better for it at at the end of that debate, at the end of that disagreement. And if we approach that with humility, 
rather than a desire to protect our feelings, um, we'll both be more mature adults at the end of the day as a result of that. So if my argument is weak, I want him or you or other people to challenge it because I will become stronger as a result of that challenge. If your argument is dull, you should welcome the grinder of dissent. That's how you sharpen a knife on a grinder. You remove, you remove part of the metal when you grind the blade. Sparks fly. You feel the heat, the tension. But at the end of the process, you have a sharpened knife that can cut cleanly. I know that's an analogy, a metaphor of what we're talking about right now. But it's one that King Solomon used, so I think I can use it as we wrap up, wrap up the show. So again, I'm going to quote Solomon. As iron sharpens iron, let one man sharpen another. This is a verse that I read to my sons almost every night. We recited it every night, literally. When they were little, when I put them to bed, I read them a Bible story, and then I would read them what we called a regular story. Often it was the Chronicles of Narnia or Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or maybe Victor Hugo's Les Mis. I read these types of stories to my boys as they were growing up. So we'd read a Bible story, that immutable, unchangeable, inerrant truth of God, and then we'd read a regular story that was a reflection of those truths. And then we would pray, as iron sharpens iron, let one man sharpen another. I wanted these two boys to know that that was my prayer for them. And likewise, it's my prayer for all of you in the conservative camp. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.